Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly, Tubi Treasures. The streaming platform Tubi has really caught fire among horror fans, at least broadly speaking now. In our Facebook horror community, half a million strong, I'd say for the last two years, maybe a little bit more, the buzz has mainly been behind Shudder, with some people stumping for obscure horror gems on Amazon Prime, with some of the art house or foreign crowd singing the praises of HBO Max, which apparently is rebranding as just Max pretty soon, which is like former President JFK going by J, whatever. Actually, it'd be more like him going by just K, right? Yeah, again, whatever. But Shudder definitely drove the most conversation in our community in terms of horror streaming platforms for the last two years running until a few months ago where it got toppled by Tubi. Tubi is getting, there's lists being dropped. Everyone's talking about what they're watching on Tubi in terms of horror in our Facebook group. So I'm going to have to admit something to y'all. I am an obsessive. (laughs) So I'm pretty much a movie purchaser. I've bought way too many of them. So I haven't really been diving into the streaming platforms for horror that much per se. But all this talk sent me down a Tubi rabbit hole, and oh my God, did I love the journey. So on this episode, we're going to cover some of the horror treasures we unearthed on Tubi. And before we get to the specific movies, I want to talk about the dank and dangerous time suck dungeon that is the Tubi Horror Vault. So join us as we dive in to Tubi Treasures. So despite getting a lot of horror recommendations from friends, I'm usually not sent down a horror rabbit holes by other people. There's one exception, which is you all, the Horror Weekly community. If I get suggestions message to the page or I have a discussion uh, or conversation through the messenger of the page, or if I jump on and do a live video And we end up talking about movies like happened a few months ago when I was looking for favorite like occult or witchy uh, horror gems. And you all gave so many amazing suggestions. I basically had a 24 hour no sleep horror marathon. So before going on the Tubi journey, I Googled like, you know, best horror on Tubi, etc. And man, were those lists disappointing. Nothing against the writers of the list. I think there's a particular reason why. So with like a, you know, what's the best horror on Amazon Prime or HBO list, I appreciate the top tier titles. Like it's good to know that like Event Horizon is on Netflix or Scream 6 landed on Paramount or whatever. But after exploring Tubi for a few weeks, I just don't think what that's what that place is. It's not for that at all. The list were like the best horror on Tubi is like Hellraiser or Return of the Living Dead or, I mean, 
as ob- about as obscure as any of the list got was like Autopsy of Jane Doe. But Tubi is like the cask of a Montellato uh, tomb for horror movies. You want to like dive in and get grimy. You want to find B movies and like really hidden gems and deep cuts. You don't want movies that everyone's talked about or heard. And honestly, after like going through a string of pretty sub-tier slashers on there with one amazing uh, find that I'm going to talk about in a little bit, it is the first streaming platform that reminded me of a physical place, like a physical video store. There's no other platform I've encountered in terms of horror that gave me the exact same feeling I would get from like browsing titles on a shelf. It's kind of remarkable. I was browsing the horror thumbnails on Tubi and I just unbidden, I was transported back in time to my like teen, preteen videos, local video store, uh, an incredibly skeevy place called Vidstar Video, which is long out of business. So I Googled it just to see if anyone else remembered this place. And it has exactly the remaining digital footprint a place like that should have. There's almost nothing showing online for this place except for one long defunct Facebook page whose last post is inexplicably a share from the TV show Inside Edition. Behind that, a post with a meme with a little shocked kitten face on it saying, X-rated movies, not for small kittens. And the post before that, sad trombone saying, hey, all, today is the final day to sell. All movies not sold today are getting bagged and stored away. TV seasons, $10. $3 VHS, down to $1. Come on down. Yeah, that's about right for what I remember of that place. But it was glorious. It was the kind of place you could walk into having no idea what you wanted and walking out with like a copy of The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover and go home and just get your mind randomly blown. And it was not in the best neighborhood. So it was it was a vaguely dangerous, edgy kind of feeling when you went there. It's just like an unduplicatable thing. And It's all to the credit of Tubi that it is the only digital, like, flat, you know, screen, no physical presence, nothing to touch there um, that reminded me of something physical. It's like a ghost literally becoming, like, corporeal in your room. All right, let's dive into the treasures. Now, you all that follow the Horror Weekly page and the podcast, I know you are, like, deeply knowledgeable, dedicated horror fans. So I apologize if these movies turn out to be not so obscure for you, if you've seen and heard of all of them. The only criteria I really go by for this podcast is just the conversations on the page in the group. I mean, when there's a half a million of you all and there's like 100 conversations a day and I track them every day, year after year, I kind of get a sense, at least in the community, what movies have some kind of visibility and all the movies I'm talking about here have been like mentioned once a year or less in the community. So even if a lot of you know these, they don't drive a lot of conversation. So 
I, at, in terms of obscurity, even if they're not exactly unknown, they definitely deserve more love. So let's go. Now, this first movie I'm going to talk about, I fucking love. This is a 1988 American witchcraft three themed thriller called Spellbinder. It's directed by Janet Greek. It stars Timothy Daly and Kelly Preston. And the screen, screenplay was written by Tracy Torme, who also wrote the screenplay for Fire in the Sky. The logline for this movie is a young lawyer, after falling in love with a beautiful woman, finds that she has an extremely mysterious past. Now, I think in a podcast called To Be Treasures, it's going to go without saying that none of the movies I'm talking about are The Exorcist. They're not going to be perfect, right? So I'm not going to dwell on the flaws of, of each of them too much because I think it's obvious they wouldn't be in To Be Treasures if they were flawless films. But that being said, I will fight for this film all day long. It basically is the plot of Get Out. And that's like an almost flawless horror movie. It has a lot in common with Poltergeist and The Craft. And if you have a lot in common with those movies and the comparison is not embarrassing to you, then good on you. You really did a good job. There are some really cool nuances and subtleties to this movie. Um, there are some pretty obvious, like, ham-fisted, um, over-the-top things that, especially in the satanic parts, I mean, there's literally an uh, alcove or a cave uh, set of caves here with, like, graffiti in it that says, like, Satan rules, which is pretty dumb. But there are a lot of clever touches in this movie, and it's a strange. It makes some really strange choices. And that's what you really want out of like a fun movie you stumble on because it's part of what makes it spiky. It makes it memorable. Like, for example, Spellbinder is like this really kind of slick, like the craft um, spell movie. But <laughs> inexplicably, it basically opens like the movie Hoosiers. We get like a pretty extended basketball sequence, which is I can only imagine there because uh, it's a weird way to start a movie like this. But there is uh, a moment where a character gets bested by another character in a way that is a little predictive. Actually, it's very predictive of things that are going to transpire later. So that's, that was cool. I appreciate that. And one super fun thing about this movie, it has, it has a twist, which probably was more exciting then than it is now. But um, it's fun to rewatch the movie knowing the twist because there is one character in particular in this movie that is basically talking in code the entire film. Like this character is subtweeting the whole movie the whole time. And it's really um, hilarious to rewatch it and get all of those little sinister Easter eggs this character is dropping. So you you got a bunch of lawyer buddies who are playing basketball. They're going hard. They're really bro-y. And then they walk out. It's nighttime. They're in a parking lot. They're all kind of like splitting up, going their separate ways. And then as two of them are talking, our star, Timothy Daly being one of them, um, they see a mysterious uh, male figure in the distance um, yelling at and then eventually slapping around what's obviously a beautiful young woman. 
They rush over to intervene. They get in kind of like a minor skirmish or fight with this um, strange character named Aldous, who turns out to be armed with a knife and look like every movie Satanist (laughs) that's ever looked. They chase him off, but not before he does the classic, the one who knows kind of line where he says, I make a prediction. You're going to regret getting, you don't know. First, he says, you don't know what you're getting into, friend. And then he says, I'll make a prediction. You're going to regret this uh, for the rest of, or as long as you live, I think he says. Which actually is the dumbest satanic prediction I think I've ever seen in a horror movie. Because as this movie ter- transpires, Timothy Daly has the best time, basically, until it all goes to hell right at the end of the movie. Like, he is, he's like the envy of his friends. <laughs> Like, um, so he does absolutely not regret this until he dies. He absolutely does not regret it until he actually dies. So the prophecy is uh, flawed. Satan apparently is not great at communicating the future to his disciples. But anyway, the fight scene is kind of cool because the character reveal is that it's Kelly Preston as Miranda, which is a great name for this character because... Miranda, famously in literature, is the daughter of Prospero in Shakespeare's play The Tempest. She's the only female in a cast of all males. And this is going to be Kelly Preston in like a very bro-heavy kind of circumstance. So it's really fitting. Plus, she's the daughter of Shakespeare's most powerful wizard. He's basically the Dumbledore of Shakespeare. So considering this is Spellbinder and there's got to be a lot of magic, it's literally nailed it with the name. But like I said, the fight is cool because you don't see her face until it's over. They're literally protecting someone. They don't know what she looks like except from afar or like from behind. So when she stands up and reveals Timothy Daly is really struck because it's Kelly Preston, his friend who was played by Rick Rosovich, which is this is funny because I like am not the biggest action movie fan. So uh, I was like, hey, that's the guy from Roxanne. But then I Googled him to see his career and it was like he's slider from Top Gun. I was like, who? <laughs> then I, I vaguely remembered and looked and I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but he's always spectacular when he pops up in movies or shows. So he's a great he plays a, a great role as Timothy Daly's best uh, friend in the movie. So um, Timothy Daly got injured in the fight. And I'm sorry, Rick Rosovich got injured in, injured in the fight. So Timothy Daly volunteers to drive. Kelly Miranda home. Um, He gets in the car and they end up, of course, going actually back to Timothy Daly's place. Miranda says, I was staying with this oldest um, lunatic. So now I'm basically homeless. So he takes her back as, you know, Timothy Daly of the time would do if Kelly Preston got in his car. They go home where uh, Miranda discovers that Timothy Daly's character has two pets, a huge dog named Goliath and a little cat named Davy. I really like the writers of this movie, not just for the size pun in that, but also because it's biblical. It's a biblical reference and um, it's going to be them against Satanists and They're outnumbered. I mean, the Satanists have a huge cult. So this is a David versus Goliath story. And I'm not going to spoil it for you, but um, yeah, (laughs) you'll have to watch to the end to see if uh, the Bible writers, (laughs) if the writers of this movie wanted to end more the movie more biblically or more satanically. Um, Anyway, when we get to their house, 
Um, Miranda displays like a pretty amazing knowledge of all the things she's encountering in the house. And this is interesting because there was a hint dropped before in the movie that Timothy Daly had just broken up with someone. And when uh, his buddy Rick asked him why, um, Timothy Daly was like, I just couldn't talk to her. She was a person who didn't know the difference between like Bach and I forget who he said, like maybe Led Zeppelin or whatever. Which is a really dumb reason to break up with someone, by the way. But um, the point was that he didn't feel like that they shared um, interests or passions. And all of a sudden, Miranda strolls in and like immediately identifies the songs playing on his on his record. Uh, immediately identifies the paintings on the wall. It's obviously a change from what he's been experiencing recently. She actually seems to know a scary amount about him. She basically palm reads him and tell him, tells him all about himself. And one of the things I really like about this movie is that it straddles the supernatural, not supernatural line pretty cleverly, actually, because it's going to turn out that there's someone working on the inside against Timothy Daly's character and maybe they fed this information to Miranda. I mean, there's a character in this movie that is fishing for details about Tim all the time. It's and then Miranda just basically dumps all this info on him and his mind is blown. It, it reminds me of weird digression, but like since digital marketing is my day job, I had read a story in a trade magazine once of uh, uh, these college roommates and one of them figured out how to weaponize Facebook ads against his roommate. Um, there's supposed to be a, a lower limit on uh, an audience size you can advertise Facebook ads to. Like, it can't be less than a 1,000 or blah, 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 whatever, at least at the time that this was written. And it was impossible to target just one person. But this, this motherfucker figured out how to do it to send a Facebook ad just to his roommate. So he would send his roommate, like, the most obscure Facebook ads. Like, do you have a fear of overly large bears? <laughs> <laughs> like, like contact our clinic and his roommate, like two weeks ago, when it told him a nightmare about like a really fat bear <laughs> chased him. Like, imagine just all your like, like strangest, most obscure thoughts just getting played back to you online. I mean, I guess that's the experience of online generally now, but whatever. But Timothy Daly has like this reaction of how do you know all this about me? And it binds them closer. She also heals the pain in his back that um, he got uh, when he was playing basketball with his friend, which also feels a little pre-planned setup-ish. I mean, this movie, I'm telling you, you're going to laugh because it's you're going to think it's just like a B-movie, but it's got layers. But it's also just fun and strange. I mean, when they first are hanging out in Tim Daly's house, um, it's clearly like too soon, right? Like she just got into a fight with what might have been a, a newly ex-boyfriend. It's way too soon to be like um, getting romantic. But there's this romantic music playing in the background and it's pretty inappropriate, right? And then all of a sudden she's reading his poem and you've got like all of this sexy music and atmosphere playing. They're clearly going to be a romantic couple. Like you know where this is headed immediately. And all of a sudden she busts out like, you're totally alone. Your parents have died. He's like, oh, yeah, they died in a car crash recently or like whatever. She just has no boundaries about 
she can be like super light in one moment and very grim the next. And it's pretty jarring against what the background of the movie is trying to do. So it's weird, like the way a 2B treasure should be. Anyway, I don't want to spoil it because I, I want everyone to encounter these movies fresh. So I'm not going to hash through the rest of the plot. It's just really well done. There are some pretty frightening scenes interspersed with some really good cat and mouse sequences with the Satanists. There's some real mystery involved. And then keep your eye out for this because it's a pretty cool touch. Um, the victim of a satanic ritual that will occur later in the movie actually has to voluntarily go to the ritual or the ritual won't work. They can't be dragged there or kidnapped there. And the the way that that kind of uh, arrival is engineered and the things that are being said, there's a really cool moment where one of the people who's tricking the character to go to the ritual is like, you know, saying overly cautious things like, don't do anything stupid. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. Like, don't, don't make a move. And then of course, as soon as he leaves, like the person makes the move. But the point is like, it's like erring on the side of caution, the satanic version, right? It's like, I want to make sure it's clear to Satan when this person got there, that we really tricked them, right? Like it, it wasn't, uh, we didn't say like, uh, hey, you should go check that out or whatever. It's got a very Twilight Zone-esque ending to this movie. And then there's some callbacks to some of the key phrases that we heard at the beginning of the movie at the end. So it wraps up in a nice little circle, snake eating its tail kind of situation appropriate for the devil. So I love Spellbinder. So our next Tubi treasure is The Initiation, a 1984 slasher film directed by Larry Stewart and starring Daphne Zuniga, Vera Miles, and Clue Gallagher. Yes, we have Lila Crane from Psycho in this movie. Amazing. The plot of this one focuses on Daphne Zuniga being plagued by a disturbing recurring nightmare and finding herself and her fellow sorority pledges stalked by a killer during their initiation ritual in a department store they're in after hours. Now, I'm going to talk much less about the plot of this one than Spellbinder, because the plot is really just a setup to move us into this department store. And I love when horror movies of this time did this. One of my favorite horror movies ever is the movie Night of the Comet. And that, like, mall setting was really memorable and chilling to me. And this is a slasher film that gives us the same effect in the last third of the movie when they're being chased around this um, department store with incredible settings. And I think it's really appropriate to the Tubi experience that I'm going to, because I'm not just this movie, but the next one I'm going to talk about, I'm primarily choosing for their settings. It's not like they're perfect movies. We talked about that. Um, but the settings here are so memorable. You feel like you're there with them. You feel like you're kind of like buying into the decisions they'd make because they're in a setting that's so familiar to you that you're like, yeah, I might do that. And as I was mentioning, the plot of the previous movie was basically get out. This is the plot of Jordan Peele's us kind of 
with a little fire startery like testing sequences, some psychic stuff thrown in. But I'm basically here for the setting, the atmosphere, the kills, which are pretty good, and then the acting, which for a slasher, this was Daphne Zuniga's debut, I believe. It's definitely early, early on in her career. And she's fantastic. And she, I can't spoil it, but she gets asked to do a little bit more than a typical final girl would be asked to do acting-wise and does a great job. The scientist in this movie, Peter, and his colleague Heidi are great fun and are kind of like Scooby doing it, doing the investigation behind the scenes to figure out what's happening, although Peter is completely inappropriate. But the killer hunting in the mall is the whole joy of this movie. I mean, Vera Miles is great, but she doesn't give him a lot to do. Um, but the sequences, there's an amazing sequence where someone gets done in by an arrow, which is fantastic. There are great like uses of the geography of the department store and the and the you know the thing like the PA system or whatever you're gonna call it back then. Uh, the uses of the freight elevators. Uh, it's really damn cool. And the end is dark. Like, it's pretty dark. So, good on them for being brave. Now, our next Tubi treasure might be the most flawed of the four I'm going to talk about, but also the most fun. So, this is one of the last of the 80s slashers, Intruder from 1989. This is the directorial debut of Scott Spiegel, who was a co-writer on Evil Dead 2 and directed From Dusk Till Dawn to Texas Blood Money. It stars uh, Elizabeth Cox from Night of the Creeps and The Wraith. It also stars David Burns from a couple of the witchcraft movies, I think Seven and one of the even later ones than that. And it stars, uh, if you could call it stars, they don't get a lot of screen time, but Sam and Ted Raimi. So why is this a treasure? Well, here's what we're here for. We're here for the setting, again, like the physicality of Tubi makes me obsessed with these. This is a uh, supermarket setting for a slasher, and it's just, I mean, they do everything you would want a slasher set in a supermarket to do. You got a meat slicer? Check. You got like a butcher shop with hooks in it? Check. I mean, is someone going to get stabbed like through one of those like ticket spikes that you put discarded receipts on? Absolutely. Are there going to be eyeballs in the olive jars? You know it. Look, all I have to do to sell you this movie is tell you that there is a character who's sawed in half who ends up with a sign placed on him that says discount half off. Sadly, we're not here for the acting. Not that we couldn't have been. I think Elizabeth Cox would have been awesome in this movie if they'd given her anything to do except for endlessly like polishing shelves and, you know, grouping carts together. With the very little they allow her to do, she's actually very charismatic and likable. The killer is spectacular, especially when they let the killer just go full-on killer after the reveal. It's just really, like, gonzo good. Sam Raimi is hilarious. He is, like, the goofiest entry scene. The first time we meet him, he kind of just blunders into a situation, setting it all off like a, like a, like a clumsy hand grenade. Ted Raimi is basically the prep guy and everything he has to do is hilarious. But alas, there's no like there's not enough story 
or backstory to the characters or anything to give them anything except for they're just here to die vibes. But that's okay because not only is the atmosphere and the setting spectacular, but oh my God, the kills and the camera use. Like there are shots in this uh, where the camera's shooting up through phones. It's shooting like in weird stacked angles and Dutch angles. And there's an amazing, I think it's my favorite shot in the movie where the killer is stalking um, Elizabeth Cox and we see his head or face viewed through like a, like a, maybe a pickle jar, like a jar filled with something and it distorts his face in this incredibly creepy way. And we hang on it when he's looking back and forth and it just looks like his face. It looks like the, if you remember the music video for Black Hole Sun, Soundgarden, it, it kind of has that kind of action. And the kills. Oh my God, the kills in this movie. I'm not saying like they're the bloodiest of all time ever or like the most creative, although they're really creative. It's just... It's one of those movies where I would give anything for this to be turned into a haunt. Like if there was an intruder themed haunt, I would pay so much money to go through one done right. Because the kills in here are really, really cool and quite gruesome. <laughs> we get a severed hand that ends up in a lobster tank. We end up with an incredible sequence where the killer has beheaded someone and beats someone else to death with the head. As Joe Bob Briggs would have said, we have shopping cart foo. We literally have POV shots from inside shopping carts. It's just spectacular. And Elizabeth Cox does a really good job of staying credibly terrified and a decent job of fighting back so that you really feel like she's got a chance I love this movie. I, I, I watched it like one and three quarter times in a row. And I'm actually sort of dying to watch it again, uh, which is, I mean, that almost never happens with old slashers that I've never heard of at this point anyway. So I fell in love with the Walnut Lake market. I'll shop there anytime, especially at night. All right, we're to our last to be treasure. And then I've got like one really quick bonus one for you, but this is probably the most known of the ones I'm going to talk about. I've heard it mentioned uh, on our page in our group a little bit more than the rest. So I'm breaking my own rule, but I'm doing it for a specific reason. This is Ken Russell's Lair of the White Worm. Yes, Ken Russell of the Devil's fame. So Lair of the White Worm is from 1988. It stars Amanda Donahoe, Hugh Grant. Yes, Hugh Grant. Catherine Oxenberg and Peter Cabaldi. Now, Catherine Oxenberg is the eldest daughter of Princess Elizabeth of Yugoslavia. So this movie stars actual royalty. Now, this is a supernatural horror comedy, and I think a lot of people miss that it's trying to be intentionally funny in parts. And yes, some of the effects are incredibly bad, uh, but in that super fun way, like the way you would want from a Tubi film, actually. Some of the acting is completely laughable. Some of the like horror scenes are just so bizarre that you like would spit out a drink if you weren't ready. And the movie was a complete flop at the box office, barely making half of its budget back. So 
Why are we talking about this? Well, first of all, I love this movie and I love Ken Russell. But second of all, um, I think a lot of people miss the miracle that happens here. This is a pretty good movie all in all. Amanda Donahoe is a fantastic horror villain. This anyone, even the people who don't like this movie, I imagine have got to be thinking after they see it that they wish she had gotten more horror villain roles. She is perfect. But let's talk about the miracle of this movie. So this is based on a Bram Stoker novel. Yes, the author of Dracula wrote Lair of the White Worm. And Bram Stoker's novel is famously, infamously bad. It's basically unreadable. And I think I once saw it listed in like an actual literary magazine or a place as the worst book ever written by a good author. So Lair of the White Worm, the movie, is better than Lair of the White Worm, the book. Now, just take a step back and ponder this. If I issued a challenge to a writer today and said, I need you to, well, actually a director, right? I need you to direct a movie that is definitely better than a book written by Bram Stoker. That would be intimidating, except for its Lair of the White Worm, where the bar is pretty low to begin with. And the movie is pretty good. It's amazingly fun and really interesting. I got to tell you, there's a, a character in this movie. I think he's the inspector. He's he's he gets turned. He's in a car with one of the heroes at the end and he turns into a snake. He gets charmed by bagpipes. But as he turns, I remember um, I remember this really creeping me out. I know the movie is just supposed to be fun and cheesy and whatnot, but like he was authentically unsettling. And there's. Another scene where Amanda Donahoe lures, like, I don't know, a Boy Scout or someone into her lair, and then she gets an unexpected visitor. So she changes her plan of what to do with this kid and bites him and paralyzes him. And he cannot move. He's sitting in, like, this pool, and he can't move. And she just dismissively puts her foot on his head and shoves him down under the water, and and he's aware, he's awake, he just can't move, and you just see it in his eyes, and she's like, actually, I'm doing you a favor, and drowns him, and it's so cold. So basically, when I watch this movie, I take it as a portrayal of Victorian nightmares, right? The same way that some of the elements in Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula are corny, um, and the same way the like opium den vibes of the Johnny Depp movie from hell have these really over the top visuals. I just take it as like it's the Trent Reznor perfect drug vibes of everyone is high. Everyone's sexually repressed. Everyone's like over religious and they're all having like crazy primitive nightmares. And when I think of the movie in that sense and watch it, it lets me forgive some of the actions or visuals that seem like really cartoonish. But I've always liked Lair of the White Worm, but I loved watching it on Tubi in the middle of a marathon. It just felt like it fit 
And that's what Tubi is for. The worm is perfectly ridiculous, but then what phallic symbols aren't. So um, I usually do a segment of the best or worst horror movie I watched because I've talked about so many movies with uh, so much excitement here. Uh, I don't want to like repeat. So I'm just going to give a quick shout out. I caught this on Tubi. It's a movie I had seen before. I was really shocked it was there and I just didn't include it in my Tubi treasures because it doesn't feel like a Tubi movie, but it's kind of amazing that it's there, right? Um, and it's the movie Personal Shopper. Now, uh, I, I fight with people about this all the time. I think it's one of the best horror movies of the last 15, 20 years. Most people I know don't even think of it as a horror movie, even though there's patently a ghost in it. Um, but And I can see that. I'm not here to fight for it or do whatever. But it's a truly strange, strange film. Um, and it's haunting. I, I remember reading somewhere... Uh, like someone description of a ghost is it's like the ghost just lingers around you like the perfume in someone's clothes uh, after they leave. It just kind of like hangs there. And I don't think I've seen a movie in the last little while that was so quiet, but still just hung there with me so long afterwards. It's a really mysterious, very creepy actually unsettling film and I watched it in the Tubi string so I just let it autoplay as I was going uh, amidst my fun slashers and my, my bloody Victorian nightmare movies and it was so jarring to see it there it's like seeing John Carpenter in a tuxedo it's just is like out of place but I love it nonetheless and I think it's a credit to the, the breadth of the Tubi library that it has movies that are truly B, C, D level films, but then a movie that I think of as, as good as The Witch or you know any other prestige horror of the last few years. So I am still in my Tubi honeymoon enthusiasm period. I'm taking all kinds of recommendations. So if you've seen something that's not like incredibly obvious, not like Day of the Dead or whatever. But if you caught, I'd love to know what your all favorite unexpected hidden horror gem or just fun experience you stumbled upon on Tubi so I can see if I've seen it or even if I have, I can just check it out on there if I haven't seen it in a while because watching, as I discovered, something on Tubi is kind of its own experience. And that's it for us at Horror Weekly. Until next Wednesday. Have a great horror week.